Let me invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. This morning, I want you to imagine a world without death. No funerals, no caskets, no morgues, no last will and testament, no burial plots. And that's hard for us to imagine because we live in a world where death is a part of our day-to-day reality. Especially with the connection we now have with technology today, we, we hear about and are faced with death every day. On the news, on social media, from friends and family. We even see death tolls on TV where the numbers of people killed in tragedies like COVID or natural disasters are steadily rising. In many ways, death has become normal. But we need to understand this morning that death is not normal. It's just about every time I preach a funeral, I remind people that what we feel when we sit at a loved one's memorial service, that deep internal pain, is a reminder that death was not a part of God's original good design. When God created the world, death was nowhere to be found. Adam and Eve and their descendants were going to live forever. And again, that's so hard to imagine. But they didn't even have a concept of death. That is, until they chose to disobey God. Just as he warned, sin and and death and all manner of evil entered the world. From that point on, every single person born on this planet was born with an invisible clock counting down their days. Every single person who has ever lived has lived with this deep sense that life is fleeting and short. And we've all faced the pain of losing someone we love. That's why the Bible speaks of death as an enemy. An attacker who plagues all of us. So no, death is not normal or natural. It's a problem. But just as God had a plan to deal with sin, he also had a plan to deal with death. God did not want his people to experience the pain of death, so he made a way to defeat it, to fix our death problem. And how did he do that? Well, he did it in perhaps the most surprising, paradoxical way possible. God defeated death by dying. He defeated death by dying himself. We talked last week all about Jesus' death on the cross and how he died to deal with our sin problem. He, He took our place. He substituted himself. And he suffered. He suffered physically from the pain of crucifixion. He also suffered spiritually, bearing the wrath of God for all sins for all people. However, Jesus did not just suffer and hang on the cross and experience God's judgment for sin and then go on with his mission. No, he suffered, as Jeremy said earlier, he suffered to the point of death. He actually died. He stopped breathing. His flesh began to fade. His heart Stopped beating. He he experienced the very thing that every one of us will face ourselves. And then he remained dead for a period of time. We obviously know that Jesus did rise from the dead. And trust me, we are going to get all excited about that next week. But today we're going to pause and think about the death and and burial of Jesus. As we look at the third stanza of Isaiah's song of the suffering servant. If you've been here with us, you know we're in the middle of a four-week series leading up to Easter Sunday. 
We're looking at a prophecy from the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah spoke to the people of Israel about this mysterious yet hopeful figure who was going to come and save the people. And he called this person the servant of the Lord. We learn that this servant would be exalted to the level of God and yet mysteriously he would also be despised and rejected by men. People would hate him and even kill him. We learn that he would suffer not because of his own sins but for the sins of others. That somehow by his wounds we would be healed. Now today we're privileged to have the full picture. We know that Isaiah was speaking prophetically about the life death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the suffering servant. So with those lens on this morning, let's continue looking at this servant song. Would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit, in his mouth. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Well, this morning, let's walk through this passage verse by verse. And as we do, I want to show you three things, three things we can learn about the death of Jesus from Isaiah's prophecy. Here's the first. Number one, the death of Jesus was voluntary. One of the interesting things we learn in the New Testament is that the death of Jesus was not a terrible mistake or a tragic accident. Yes, what was done to Christ was evil and wrong. Yes, people were shocked and confused. But from the perspective of the Old Testament, his death was not unexpected at all. And here's Isaiah 700 years before Jesus ever came to the earth prophesying about his death. This tells us that for Jesus to die, to even die a brutal death on a cross, was all a part of God's sovereign plan. But perhaps even more interesting is the fact that Jesus was fully aware of this plan. And not only was he aware, but he was willing. The picture the Gospels give us, it's not like those tragic movies where everyone knows the main character is going to die, but the main character doesn't know. And you're like, no, don't get on the boat. Or don't go in the basement. You know, it's like, why do they do that? <laughs> That's not the story we see of Jesus. From the beginning, Jesus was fully aware that he would die. And not just from the beginning, but actually from eternity past. When God planned before time began his wonderful plan of salvation, Jesus was not the last resort or the only option. It wasn't like the Trinity was just sitting around one day thinking, you know, Sorry, Jesus, you drew the short straw. You're going to have to die for the people. (laughs) No, Jesus was not bribed or begged or punished or tricked into coming to the earth because he is God. He was a part of the planning himself. He willfully chose to come and die on behalf of mankind. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2 says it like this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight 
and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, listen to this, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Why did Jesus endure the cross? It was for the joy set before him. He joyfully fulfilled his role in salvation by coming to die for his people. So we see all throughout the Gospels, Jesus being fully aware and always moving towards that purpose of going to die. I was reminded of that recently when I read through the Gospel of Luke. Luke tells us in chapter 9, verses 51, he says, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. To set his face, it meant that Jesus was resolute. He was all in, focused on going to Jerusalem. And we see several more times Luke tells us Jesus made his way to Jerusalem. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. Why does he keep saying that? Well, Jerusalem is where Jesus knew his mission would be completed. That's where he would be arrested and tried and convicted and crucified. Through all throughout his ministry, Jesus teaches, he heals, he loves people, but there's a shadow cast over him throughout. The shadow of the cross. Jesus not only knew this internally, he also vocalized it. Multiple times in the Gospels, we see Jesus predict his own death. It's interesting, he clearly tells his disciples, hey guys, just a heads up. We're going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, they're going to kill me, and then I'm going to rise again from the dead. And it says... They didn't understand. They could not get it. They were concealed from knowing what he meant, even though he told them clearly. But what Isaiah highlights to predict that Jesus would die voluntarily is not what he said. It's actually what he didn't say. Look again at verse 7 of Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his his mouth. Do you see that twice? Isaiah tells us in this, in this verse that the suffering servant would not open his what? His mouth. Even though he would be mistreated and oppressed, he would not speak to defend himself. And he compares this to sheep led to the slaughter. Now, I know nothing about sheep and how they're dealt with, but from what I understand, when a sheep is loaded up to be taken to its death, it does not protest. Say, wait, wait, take the other guy. All right? Doesn't run away. That's because sheep are not very intelligent. <laughs> sheep don't know what's about to happen to them. We've already established that Jesus did know what was coming. Yet, like a lamb, he too remained quiet. He didn't protest or try and stop his death from happening. Now, we know that Jesus was not literally and completely silent. He did answer a few questions when the authorities questioned him. He did say some things on the cross. But the point is that he did not open his mouth in protest. When he was put through unjust trials with fraudulent evidence and false witnesses, he didn't try to defend himself even though he could have. This was a man who was the greatest teacher to ever live. He could have easily persuaded these men and won them over to his side, but he didn't. He could have corrected their misunderstandings and provided evidence and witnesses, but he didn't. He willingly allowed them to wrongfully accuse him. Have you ever been wrongfully accused of something? If you have, I'm going to guess that you didn't stay quiet. 
That's hard to do. Like we naturally want to defend ourselves when someone is saying we did something that we clearly didn't do. Uh, as a kid, this happened to me. I only got sent to the, to the principal's office one time. Yes, one time. I was in a school assembly when my friend sitting next to me, he grabbed my hand and he started hitting me with it. And he said, stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. And I'm like, I would if you weren't grabbing my hand and hit me with it. It's your fault. Anywho, the teacher saw it. She sent us to the principal's office. We sat down in his office. I remember he began to scold us. We lived in a small town, so of course he used the, my, the fact that my dad is a preacher against me. He'd say, if your dad was up there preaching, would you be horsing around like that, boy? I tried to tell him I wasn't doing anything wrong. We are just playing around, and why in the world would I ever hit my own self? <laughs> it makes no sense. He didn't listen. No one likes to be wrongfully accused of something you didn't do. We want to justify ourselves. We want to defend our honor. But Jesus didn't do that. Why? When they beat him and whipped him, why didn't he rain down fire on them and destroy them in a moment? When they shouted, crucify him, why didn't he silence the crowd and explain that this was all just one big misunderstanding? When they nailed him to the cross, why didn't he snap his fingers and disappear to another place completely? When he suffocated from hanging on the cross, why didn't he give himself supernaturally the oxygen he needed to live? Why? Why did Jesus allow all this to happen to him when he had the full power and ability as God to stop it? Here's why. Let's let Jesus explain it in his own words. John chapter 10, verses 14 through 18, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Do you see the voluntary part in there? With all that we know about Jesus being arrested and tried and beaten, nailed to a cross, he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus was in full control. He chose to die, and he says, why? I lay down my life for my sheep. Jesus chose to die voluntarily for his sheep. Do you remember Isaiah 53, 6 from last week? Look back one verse. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. You'll remember we, we're compared to sheep who wander away from God. We, we've sinned against God. We've gone our own way. But then we find in John 10 that Jesus, our good shepherd, became a sheep like us. And he actually went to be slaughtered in our place. Silently, willingly, he died for sinners like me. That he might bring me and bring us back into the fold as one of his. That's the first thing we learn about the death of Jesus. It was voluntary. Here's the second. Number two, the death of Jesus was unjust. We live in a culture that is very interested in justice, particularly our justice system. That's why we have cameras in courtrooms. We have entire shows dedicated to live trials. We get especially interested when someone is denied justice, when an innocent person is convicted or when a guilty person goes free. We have all kinds of stories and documentaries about people who sit on death row and they're exonerated by DNA evidence one day. 
We're interested in that. We, we rightly value justice, which is another reason why the death of Jesus was so bothersome. His death was the most unjust, unjust trial, conviction, and execution in human history. And this is exactly what Isaiah prophesied. Look at verse 8. It says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Those words, oppression and judgment, used together speak of injustice. And that's exactly what we see in the Gospels. We see that the entire process of Jesus being tried was done contrary to Jewish law. Let me give you some examples of some things we might miss if we're not familiar with Jewish custom in that day. When Jesus was arrested, he was taken to the high priest's home and he was put on trial in the middle of the night. When Jewish law mandated that trials be done in broad daylight so people could watch and hold them accountable. Trials also were not allowed to take place during holidays, yet Jesus' took place during the holiday of Passover. The Sanhedrin, who was the highest Jewish court of the day, these guys were supposed to act as judges, but in Jesus' case, they acted as the prosecutors. Jewish law also required a particular number of witnesses with the exact same statements and details. They also gave an opportunity for the accused person to have counter witnesses. None of that was afforded to Jesus. His conviction and sentencing were also unjust. This time the law required a unanimous vote, which we have no record of. And it also required execution by stoning, not crucifixion. And even this was to be delayed by a few days to give time for proof of innocence to be brought forward. But that wasn't given either. So the entire trial and conviction by the Jewish leaders of Jesus was unjust. Then there was Pilate. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. He knew he had no grounds to crucify this man. But he gave in because he knew the Jews didn't like him. And he was already in hot water with his senior leadership. If the Jews revolted against him, he would lose his job. So he even tried to use that tradition where he would release one prisoner at Passover. And instead of Jesus, he ended up releasing a guilty man named Barabbas. Let's also consider the fact that not only was Jesus innocent, but he was perfect. He was the most morally pure and upright person to ever walk the earth. He never sinned in any way, shape, or form. He was the last person who should have ever been punished. Yet he was executed as a common criminal in the most humiliating way possible. His death was a travesty of justice. Yet, Jesus was no victim. From man's perspective, it was another poor Jewish person struck down by an evil Roman regime. But from God's perspective, the Son of God was willingly dying for the sins of the world. We've already seen Jesus was a willing participant in his death. He was following this plan. Yes, sinful men were carrying out injustice, but only because it was God's sovereign will for it to happen. And this is the part that people missed in that time and still today. Look at the rest of verse 8. It says, And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Of his generation, in other words, the people in his day, who considered, who of them realized that he was dying for them? No one seems to get that, that Jesus was on the cross paying for their sins in their place. This reminds me of a story I read recently about a guy in Pennsylvania who bought an old painting one day at a yard sale for $4. 
He bought it because he liked the frame. And when he went to take it apart, the frame, it broke. And he found between the canvas and the wood backing of the painting this old folded-up document. When he opened it up, it turned out to be one of the first copies ever printed of the Declaration of Independence. (laughs) That $4 investment, get this, ended up selling at an auction for $2.4 million dollars. That amazing, <laughs> but think about the person who sold the painting at the yard sale. Like, man, that would be my luck. Like, I'd be that guy. And these people had a rare copy of one of history's most important documents, a multi-million-dollar item, right in their hands, and they had no idea. Same thing is true of Jesus. The Romans, the Jews. They had no idea what was happening right in front of their eyes, and many people still don't to this day. Nearly everyone in our nation has heard the name of Jesus, and most people could say, yeah, I know, he died on the cross. But most people have no idea that his death is the very means of their salvation. They don't realize that if they would simply believe in him, they would be saved forever. The death of Jesus was unjust. But it was his unjust treatment that led to our innocence. It was his agonizing death that led to our eternal life. That's second. Here's the third and last thing we learn about the death of Jesus. Number three, the death of Jesus was temporary. That'll preach, won't it? (laughs) We know the rest of the story. We know Jesus did not stay dead, but he was actually raised to new life. But let's think for a minute about the burial of Jesus. We we don't often think about that. We don't spend much time considering what they call Holy Saturday, the day before Friday, or between Friday when Jesus was crucified and Sunday when he was raised. But there's a reason for that day. There's a reason Jesus remained dead for a time and was actually buried. First off, Jesus was buried in fulfillment of prophecy. That's what Isaiah said would happen. Look at verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. It's interesting. There is no way to understand this part of the prophecy unless you see how it was fulfilled in Jesus. I mean, this part about the rich man is completely out of left field. It makes no sense unless you read the Gospels. But when we do, we find that Jesus was crucified between two criminals. He was killed as an enemy of the state. So he made his grave with the wicked. But when it came time to get rid of his body, what happened? A rich man named Joseph came to Pilate, requested the body. And Joseph gave up his own tomb for Jesus to be laid in. There's the the rich man reference. So Jesus' burial, it was important because it fulfilled prophecy. That's first. Second reason his burial was important is because it proves he truly died and was truly resurrected. One of the ways that non-believers attempt to explain away the resurrection is they argue that maybe Jesus didn't really die. Maybe he simply became unconscious until he was put in the tomb and then he was revived and walked out. And there's a real title. They call this the swoon theory. It's a genuine explanation people use to explain away the resurrection. And you can probably think up a lot of reasons that makes no sense. The very fact of his burial demonstrates that Jesus was truly dead. At the end of John chapter 19, we read that Joseph and Nicodemus, they prepared Jesus for burial. 
They cleaned him up. They wrapped his body in linen. And then it says that they soaked his body in the linen in 75 pounds of spices. If he was not dead at this point, he would have never survived being smothered in all of that stuff and then placed in a sealed tomb with no oxygen. So knowing that he was buried affirms that he was truly dead, which affirms that he was truly raised to new life. The third reason his burial is important is that it was an aspect of his humiliation and becoming like sinful man. Listen to this quote from the Westminster Larger Catechism. It says this, Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of the dead and under the power of death till the third day. Think about that for a second. Jesus died. He experienced the fullness of the curse and sting of death despite what we read in Colossians 1. Colossians 1, Paul wrote this about Jesus. says, he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Isn't that crazy that that Jesus, that same Jesus that Paul's describing in these huge, all-encompassing terms, The one who by all things were created through him and for him, that Jesus submitted himself to the point of dying. And he remained dead until Sunday. No heartbeat, no oxygen filling his lungs, his organs failing, his flesh decaying, and he laid there in that state, buried in the very earth he created. That's why his burial is so important. Because Jesus humbled himself, not just to the point of suffering, but to actual death and to all that it brings. The curse that had plagued humanity since Adam and Eve, Jesus took every part of it. But again, we need to ask, why? Why did Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb, the one who had done no violence, the one who had no deceit in his mouth, why did it happen this way? Why did he have to die? Here's why. It's as simple as this. Jesus died to defeat death. Jesus could not just take the lashings and take the punches and take the nails and bear the full weight of sin and walk away and go back to heaven. No, the wages of sin is death. In order for Jesus to make all things right again, in order for him to save us and make us right with God, he couldn't just deal with sin. He couldn't just defeat the devil. He had to go all the way. He had to drink every last drop of that cup of judgment. He had to finish what he started. He had to defeat death by dying himself. And once death was defeated, Jesus came out the other side. He was victorious, and his death was temporary. He didn't stay there in that tomb because there was nothing left to hold him there. It was finished, and he rose again to new life, and he will never die again. I love what Jesus tells the disciple John at the very beginning of Revelation. John has this vision of Jesus. And here's what Jesus says about his post-resurrection self. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death in Hades. 
He says, I'm never dying again. In fact, I got the keys. I got the keys. I got all authority and power over death. So now for those who trust in him, death is temporary for us too. We still live in a fallen world, so all of us will reach a point, yes, where our bodies will die. And our souls will go to be with Jesus. We will experience death. But our death will be temporary too. For Paul said to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. So death is no longer a fear. It's not something we have to to worry about. It's no longer an enemy. But now it's become a gateway to eternal life with Jesus. And even physical death will be defeated when Jesus returns. The very end of Revelation chapter 20 verse 14 tells us that death and Hades will be thrown into hell. Think about that. Even death will be thrown into hell. Death will be fully and finally destroyed, never to torment us again. And you and me will be reunited with our resurrection brand new bodies and we will never die again. This is what the death of Jesus means for us. This is what it means for you. We don't have to be afraid. Who could touch us? And what could happen to us? What do we have to worry about? Nothing. Because the death of Jesus was voluntary, unjust, but temporary. And for all who believe in him through his death, we have eternal life. We can know without a doubt that the moment we breathe our final breath here, we will go to be with Jesus forever. Isaiah prophesied it, Jesus fulfilled it, and you and me, we get to live it. (laughs) We get to experience it. What a gift. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer.